All right, welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today is Tuesday, May 19th. And today we have an interview with Brett Bivens. It was a lot of fun. We talked uh, a lot about the audio space and then his career as well. Um, but before we get to that, uh, Brett and I both have our own stories. Brett, what are you talking about? Yeah, so interview's great. Uh, I definitely listen to that, especially if you're interested in Spotify or startups at all. That's what Brett has written about and uh, that's where he works in. But my stories are short, uh, so they're going to be quick hitters, I guess. Uber wants to buy Grubhub, um, so there's some fallout over that. We're going to ask a little question about that. Taiwan Semiconductor is going to have a factory in Arizona, which is a big surprise. And then Facebook is building an undersea cable uh, in Africa, spending a lot of money to partner with that. Okay, and I'll be talking about uh, Michael Berry's holdings or uh, Scion Asset Management's 13F that they filed. Uh, it's kind of a big, it was a big week for hedge funds. They all had to file their 13F or anyone, I think it was like anyone with more than 100 million in AUM or something like that. Um, so uh, I'll be talking about that and we can kind of analyze that and give our thoughts. But uh yeah, and then as always, we have current state of FinTwit, Hot Water, Fuck, Mary Kill, and anecdotal evidence. Let's go. Okay, welcome in. I'm going to kick things off. Scion Asset Management released their 13F this week. So this is Michael Berry's LLC that he runs. And if you don't know who Michael Berry is, he was played by Christian Bale uh, in the popular movie, The Big Short. He's well known for shorting the housing bubble during the financial crisis. Um, that's kind of what he's known for. Um, and so we're kind of going to just dive through his top 10 holdings and then uh, eat and kind of give our thoughts. He, he's definitely a value guy. Uh, he's well known as a value investor. He's not, these aren't, I don't, to the best of my knowledge, these mostly are not growth companies. Um, but just for everyone's information, the total portfolio value is around 85 million. He's been keeping it at that. Maybe he's like withdrawn some. I think he doesn't, I think he's afraid of getting too big. It might all be his own money at this point. I'm really not sure. Um, but uh, I'll, I'll get into the holdings. His largest holding, which makes up 18% of his portfolio, is GameStop. Um, and we'll, we, we can talk about them after. But uh, yeah, so we won't give any thoughts. We'll just go through them first. Um, second largest is 12% Jack in the Box. Third largest, 12% Corvo, which is like a semiconductor company that designs, manufactures, and supplies radio frequency systems. And then 12% in Facebook, which is his fourth largest holding. That's a new holding for him. 11% uh, in Maxar Technologies. It's a space technology company that makes communication tools, earth observation stuff, radar and satellite products. So just space tech, I guess. Um, and then sixth largest holding, new one as well, 10% in Boeing. And then seventh largest, 8% in Discovery Communications. That is, they're responsible for like, Discovery Channel, Discovery Channel, Animal Planet, and a lot of those like nature channels, I guess. Um, and then eighth largest is Michael's Companies, which is, if you've never been to a Michael's, it's like an arts and crafts store. It's like a chain store. I think it's the largest one in North America. Um, and then 
ninth largest holding. This one's a little interesting. He has 3% in Las Vegas Sands Corp's call options. So lots of upside there. Um, and he also has calls on Win Resorts. And those, if you don't know what either, those are their casino and resort companies. So I guess he's along or he thinks there's going to be a lot of upside for the casinos. Um, and then his 10th largest holding was Tailored Brands, which is a holding company from Men's Warehouse and Joseph A. Bank. Uh, any surprises there for you? Yeah, biggest surprises would be Boeing and Las Vegas Sands Corp. But I guess what he typically looks at, and this is kind of the way he goes at it, is he's going riskier, but he doesn't need everything to be right. So Boeing, if things work out well, could be great because it is probably it's the only American company that does what it does currently. Uh, so that's interesting, and he probably looks at that similarly, like a call option where they're almost too big to fail. And then the Las Vegas Sands Corp and Wind Resorts call options are also interesting, probably because he's seeing whether you know either of these companies are going to go bankrupt or they're going to be worth what they were before. They're not going to be worth what they are what they are currently trading at. Uh, so I think that's for the way he likes to invest. That's that makes sense to me. Um, and those seem like the most interesting positions. Yeah, he runs a pretty concentrated portfolio as well. Uh, I I did the math a little bit here, and his top six holdings make up seventy five percent of the overall portfolio. So, like you said, uh, not necessarily risk averse by any means. Um, he dropped all his holdings in Google, BlackBerry, and then three others. Um, and when he sells, he sells it all. There is no trimming. Every position yep. that he sold, he sold 100%. Yeah, that seems to be what a lot of uh, renowned investors do compared to the ones that are just average. Um, and I think that's a good note. But, you know, Buffett did that with the airlines. And I guess, you know, whoever, Berkshire Hathaway did that with the airlines. Um, and a few other investors have done that recently where when things change, uh, you don't just sell 10% of something and just wait. You sell it all immediately because if the facts change and you don't think it's a good investment anymore, why should you have any money in it? Yeah, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Um, and then Boeing, Jack in the Box, and Facebook are all entirely new positions. Um, Jack in the Box, I looked at their financials, kind of, kind of bland. I didn't check the valuation, which I'm assuming is what he's kind of playing on there. Yeah, um, I can look it up real quick. But it's uh, they are profitable. Um, I would guess it's a value play. They're not growing super fast. Um, and then Boeing, uh, yeah, they must think it's too big to fail. And then Facebook, interesting to me, it feels sort of like a Google substitute, uh, being that he swapped it out for Google. Yeah, that's it's um, he's been trading Facebook a while. Uh, he goes in and out of that position. But if we look here at Jack in the Box, and these are uh, like 45 days old. So Jack in the Box fell from 90 all the way down to almost 30 in the March, you know, wow. trough there. And now it's back up to 63. And then if we look at their current EV to free cash flow at 17, so they're trading below 10 EV to free cash flow on a very steady business. That was probably his thought there. And I wouldn't, I mean, whatever, maybe he ended up selling that, but that's a good note on 13 F's. So you're not looking at the current holdings, you're looking at the holdings from 45 days prior. Right. Um, theories on what he sees in GameStop, because we've gone over this before, and we've gone over it with Aaron Bush, who is on the show, who's probably the foremost expert that we know in the gaming space. Mm -hmm. and we, mm -hmm. we hate it. So I'm Yeah. 
It's weird. It's very weird. Uh, maybe he's done some digging, talked to management, and it's strange that it says number one holding because it seems like one of the riskier ones. And it's uh, not but, like a, oh god, it's not like it got there by appreciating in value. Like it's not like it doubled and he had nine percent or something like that. He has added. Yeah, me... It's fifteen million, um, and the he has fifteen million dollars worth in there, and the market cap is like two hundred something million. So. Yeah, they they haven't recovered at all. So, yeah, no, there has. I mean, there might have been single blips with single recoveries, but he's been adding shares frequently. I just don't. I don't understand what he's seeing. Maybe he's maybe he's gonna single handedly buy them out. Yeah, possibly. Uh, I I mean, you could argue that video games are getting a bump right now, but it's probably all digital sales that are getting a bump. And yes, gaming itself is gonna grow, but. It's going to go all digital soon. And we're st- talking downloads, um, which is about what 80% of the main digital games are, uh, you know, or sorry, the main games are sold digitally now, which just means you download it in like 20 minutes from your console or on your computer. And you don't use the CDs or disc or whatever, you know, GameStop sells. They have been transitioning to being esports hubs and gaming hubs, which could be interesting. Uh, kind of like a. Have they, have they been doing that? That's. Have I mean, been? that's interesting. I don't know. I don't know if that can replace the entire business. Yeah. But it's weird because he, again, though, he takes risky positions and he doesn't need everything to be right. He probably needs thirty percent of his positions to be right, at least. You know, Facebook or whatever, and Boeing, or I guess not even Boeing, but some like Facebook is more reliable. The small yeah. cap positions that he's taking. He needs about a third of those to be right because when they're right, he's right really big. Yeah. Um, do you think he's earned the right to not have his que- or his holdings questioned? Because uh, you know, I look at if I were looking at this portfolio and I didn't know who owned it, I I would not think it's a great portfolio. Um, mm, yeah. I mean, who cares? I don't know. Yeah. I can question I it. I can question Buffett's portfolio. Um, it doesn't really matter. He's not listening to me but it's fun to talk about. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, what do you have for the week? Okay. So three short stories here, uh, news stories, not, I'm not going to be talking about a novel. Uh, but first one is Uber. They want to buy Grubhub. And if you don't know, you know, Uber runs Uber Eats and Grubhub is one of the other Uber Eats competitors, which is just meal delivery. Uh, the deal has not gone through though. Grubhub wants more Uber shares per Grubhub share. So it's going to be a stock deal. Uh, and, I guess they, they want a higher price. Uh, we'll see what happens, though. It seems like both companies are doing well right now. Uh, they've had a lot of momentum. But I don't know about on the profitability standpoint. If you saw, there's that uh, pizza arbitrage article. Did you read that? I'm not sure I would say Uber has been doing well. Uh, Uber well, Eats Uber Eats has. Right. Um, no, I did, I did not see this pizza arbitrage article. Well, basically, that when I was going around, it's been like, I don't know, it was like it went kind of viral, but the basically what happened is this guy who was in finance, he knew a guy that ran a pizza joint and he found out that uh, DoorDash and all the other people, I think it was specifically DoorDash, had started listing their restaurant even though they don't do delivery because you can just send in the guy and then you know get the pizza, pick it up or whatever. Yeah. But he found out that they were charging less than what he sold the pizzas for. So on the website, they had $24 for a pizza. But DoorDash sold to their end user or customer 
for $16. So basically they could net $8 if they just sold the pizzas to themselves. And then there's costs associated with that. So again, the, the way that these delivery uh, companies have been run have been pretty poorly from a profitability standpoint. They've been going 100% for growth and the unit economics are a lot tougher. But that's besides the point. The combined entity would have about half of the delivery market share in the U.S. and they would basically split it with a two-man race with a DoorDash. Question here, does any of this matter? Um, and would consolidation at all help uh, with the delivery food industry? I'm, I, would t- I would usually say no because I hate the unit economics, especially when there's like major competition arising every which way but maybe they've got maybe they can get like five percent operating margins if Mm -hmm. there's really one significant player like let's say doordash didn't exist or maybe they couldn't survive and grubhub and uber eats carried the whole market maybe there's five percent operating margins i don't see it but it's possible yeah and even if these companies combine None of them are investable to me. No. I mean, if we're looking, if, we're, if 5% operating margins is the, uh, that's the pinnacle, yeah, that doesn't seem very investable. Yeah, their sales ratios are going to need to improve. All right, second story here. Uh, something that we don't typically talk about, but I thought it would be interesting. So Taiwan Semiconductor, which is a giant, as you would have guessed, semiconductor company, is launching a factory in Arizona. It's going to be $12 billion investment will provide 1,600 high-tech jobs, which I guess is not that many jobs. Uh, the finish date is supposed to be 2024, and their customers include Apple, Qualcomm, and NVIDIA. So m- all of their other factories, well, I don't know about all of them, uh, but most of them are in East Asia. And it's weird because this seems like a weird timing where there's a lot of big momentum here in the fissure between the U.S. and China business operations. They try, they're trying to bring, it seems like, a lot of the IP stuff, you know, kind of the core things that run the consumer defense, um, even, you know, the medical and health economy over from China into the United States. So give me a little bit of, like, history or geography. Taiwan is, like, they try to recognize themselves as independent, and China mm-hmm. does not recognize them that way, right? Yeah, so it's like the one China policy. China recognizes themselves as, or they think that Taiwan is a state, but Taiwan acts independently with their own government. It gets a lot more complicated than that. But yeah, it used to be a state of China. They are independent. They're like 23 million people. Uh, Very modern, very, like a bigger Hong Kong almost. Um, But I don't want to insult anyone by comparing the two. But it's, yeah, it's, it's sort of like China thinks they are a part of China, but Taiwan and the rest of the world. So just for reference, like Taiwan is the number one ally for the United States in that region. Interesting. Okay. And then what did you ask? Sorry. So like, does this mean there's more momentum for the fissure between Chinese companies and people operating in East Asia and the United States companies? And by fissure, you mean like separation? Yeah. Breaking apart. Right. Okay. Then yes. Then I'm reading the question right. Yeah. I think that I think so. And you, there's, and maybe it's maybe it's I'm filled with like these Twitter threads and Donald Trump's tweets, but it feels like 
there's a lot of distrust going on. And Mm -hmm. I mean, even, even today, Muddy Waters came out with that new report of that Chinese company that they think is a total fraud. So I, I, obviously that's not, I don't think they're doing business in America, but I don't know. There, there seems to be a lot of turmoil. Yeah. And I think from an investing standpoint, the one thing I would just be concerned with is if there's American companies that have a lot of revenue in China, if that separation occurs, there could be some downfall there. So companies like Apple, Starbucks, McDonald's, stuff like that. I, it's not getting to that point yet, but if you're investing in those companies or even Disney as well, um, and there's others, uh, I would, I don't know. I just something I would be concerned about um, and definitely reading up on. Yeah. I mean, I've personally, I don't have any businesses that are Chinese uh, like specifically. Um, and I don't think I have any businesses that do business over there. Uh, I would be very concerned if I did. Yeah. All right. I, I, I've been investing for two years and it's never felt like this much distrust. Uh, between yeah. Two, two years. Months. That's basically a lifetime. So yeah, I've learned a lot. So, all right. What's your, uh, what's your third one? Okay. Third one. This one's an interesting one. Facebook is building an undersea cable in Africa. So Facebook and a bunch of telecom companies are building the most comprehensive subsea cable ever in Africa to serve the African internet. I think it's like 180 terabits per second, or that's just a number I saw. Uh, but Another note here, should be done or live by 2023 or 2024, should help about a billion people get better internet connectivity. Are we underestimating Facebook's goals and ambitions for the next decade to own, basically, the internet in emerging markets? Uh, I wouldn't say we're underestimating that. I mean, I I feel like Mark Zuckerberg wants to rule the world, um, but... Sort of. He wants to rule the internet world. Yeah. I, I, I mean, not like in the Adam Newman sense, but he... Uh, <laughs> right, right. There, yeah, I definitely wouldn't fault him for his ambition because he's, he's done well so far, but is it the company that we want responsible for it? I don't know. That's more it, of a concern for me. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, current state of FinTwit then... I have two things. Uh, first is the, uh, did you see Elon and Portnoy are friends? Yeah. Well, I think it's all just a show. Um, but yeah, probably. Yeah, I don't uh, know. I thought, thought that was an interesting cultish, note. They're cultish figures, so they match up well together. Yeah. And then did you take a look at the SoftBank slide deck? Yeah. I mean, there's only like the one slide uh, with the unicorns going up the hill. That well, there's was four, there's four slides. Well, they're they're four the same unicorn thing, but yeah, the goalie or whatever. It just reminds me of the the big short where they're like, ah, oh, it's just a goalie. It's just a goalie. Yeah. No, we'll be back. They'll they'll sell that house soon. I mean, the first twelve slides were just black smoke behind the back and depressing figures about coronavirus and uh, the Great Depression. Yeah, but. The one slide that literally just said unprecedented crisis. Like, yeah, they need to, okay, whoever makes Warren Buffett slides and whoever makes SoftBank slides, they need to team up um, because I think they can meet somewhere in the middle and do a lot better. Yeah, and then there was another one where they were like, it was like uh, 
big problem. I forget whether it was titled, but it was like big problems facing unicorns. Mm-hmm. And there was two giant red circles and one said massive decline in sales. And one said negative free cash flow. Yeah. Like, negative. That was a problem before coronavirus. Yeah. Like, I mean, if SoftBank's so precarious. Um, if we don't get a strong recovery, they could be in trouble. Who knows? There's so many working parts with them, uh, but I don't know. Just, I mean, they're really their only significant holdings are Alibaba and Sprint, right? Yeah, Sprint got saved though uh, by T-Mobile, so that's interesting. Uh, but Alibaba, yeah, I don't know. That's it's why like what 100? They own like 170 billion dollars worth of that. I, I don't know. It feels like I, on their holdings, it looked like it was like 80 to 90% of their entire business. Yeah. It's, they're a strange company. Um, it, most likely they got a couple of things super right by taking some giant risks. They invested in Alibaba at the start. Great. You know, the Masayoshi son, it feels like, okay, you can be stupid and get rich. It, it like they're, they're not exclusive. Yeah, he used to be the richest man in the world once in 1999 for like a day. It's mind blowing to me. Okay. Um, what, what do you have? All right. So I tweeted out this question that seemed to get some good responses. So I thought we'd discuss it quick. So if you could only own three stocks for the next three years, what would it be? Yeah. So I responded to this. Um, for the next three years, I would like to own Square. But now, this next year, there's obviously going to be some headwinds with the loans that they've put out and the uh, just the business in general because lack of traffic in terms of in-store volume maybe. But over three years, I'm confident they'll be fine. And then Spotify, um, I feel like they're going to dominate the audio market. And we talk about that on the interview, so I'll kind of let Brett discuss why. And then third, I'm going to go Match Group. I think I, I saw a figure today that it was like 3% of marriages came from online or were derived online like 10 years ago or something like that. And then it said 40% today in the US. So I'm optimistic about the outlook for online dating. Damn, well, we said the same three. You responded though. You didn't say match. Oh, you did said I say Roku. Roku. I said Roku, didn't I? Yeah. Well, those can be three and four. Match Group was probably my fourth. Yeah, actually, Roku. Sorry, throw Roku in there. I don't know who I'd discard. Maybe maybe Match Group. Uh, maybe push Match Group to four. But Roku, I've, I've discussed why. I think the coronavirus is accelerating the cord cutting. Uh, anecdotal evidence, my parents just cut the cord, and we've been just fine. Um, yeah. So I think, this, I think this is accelerating that, and they're starting to see that shift from advertisers as well. A lot of, lot of positive tailwinds coming to, into that industry, and Roku stands to benefit the most in my mind. Mm-hmm. What about you? Well, I said Square, Match, and Spotify. I don't know. We talk about it on the interview, but we've talked about it before, why we like Spotify. But I said Axon Enterprises. I think they're recession-proof. They sell to law enforcement agencies, which have very stable budgets, um, and they're launching a lot of new initiatives to try to upend the very slow paperwork and uh, management and evidence management and documents for the back end offices for judges, policemen, firemen, stuff like that. So I did, 
However, I was surprised by your second tweet, which was what one company could you own for five years? I'm surprised Boston Omaha hops in there for five and not the three years. Well, if you're thinking, okay, so three companies for three years, I'm confident that one of those companies will do very well uh, just because of the likelihood and we invest in riskier companies, more growth names. So you need less of them to do well, uh, but they have to do really, really well. But if you're investing in one company, you are, and this is the 100% of your wealth, you are protecting against the downside. So Boston Omaha, I think, is very stable and has that upside potential compared to someone like Berkshire Hathaway or, I don't know, Facebook or Amazon or something like that. Okay, so you're, you're more looking for like... A diverse, diverse enough revenue streams that if one got cut, you'd be fine for five years. Yeah, or like say you invested in Spotify and that was your only stock, and the investment thesis didn't work out. Uh, I, it's just you can't. The risk of losing all your capital is a lot higher, and the diversification is just insanely low. That in that situation, it's not realistic. But I just thought it was a good thought exercise. Yeah. Okay, well, we have an announcement, uh, sort of some gloomy news. Am I using the word yeah. right? Yeah, it's a kind of some bad news, kind of a good news, bad news situation here. Um, we are going to have to put a pause to the podcast uh, for, what, three or four months? Yeah, for the summer, at least. So I am going on a trip in the yeah. outdoors, and Ryan has a job that uh, requires him to... Uh, under their compliance rules, since it's a finance job, he cannot uh, talk about companies outside of whatever their purview. So that's just kind of the rules they have. And then I will be yeah. away from civilization, I guess. Uh, but yeah. we plan on starting it up. It'll end by the end of May. And then we plan on starting out the same exact stuff when we get back. Yeah, and we're already sort of queuing up some interviews for afterwards. Yeah, so we're stopping. We're going to have one more show, I believe, uh, next Tuesday. But then, so this will be our second to last show. And then after that, we are done. But you, do, do you care if I tell them that you are on a long walk? Yeah, I'm going from uh, Mexico to Canada on the West Coast. Yeah. And uh, if Tesla is at $1,500 a share by the time you get to Canada, do you keep walking? Yeah, yeah, probably. If it's not bankrupt when I get back, I'll just stay out there until it goes bankrupt. Uh, right. But no, yeah, it's uh, it's exciting, but it's disappointing we have to pause it because, you know, we've had some good momentum. Uh, but yeah. we'll hopefully, you know, just stay following us um, and we'll get, you know, we'll start right back up with the same stuff, maybe even some more stuff uh, yeah. in the fall. So, yeah. All right, and then uh, next we have our interview with Brett Bivens. What did you like the most? Mm, he, I like to talk about what he writes about on his Substack. Uh, so he's kind of just started this up, I think, and then he talks about how Spotify and AirPods work into the new audio market that is being, I guess, disrupted is the word you would use, or there's a lot of change going on right now. Uh, and a lot of money going after that and just talking about how that might end out up or sorry, might end up, you know, a few different scenarios talking about that. 
Yeah, and I liked uh, specifically his comments on liquidity quality, which I think was a term coined by Bill Gurley. Um, and it's, it's actually had me thinking differently about uh, the businesses that I'm looking at ever since the interview. So definitely pay attention to that part. Um, yeah, I hope you guys enjoy it. Here you go. All right, today we are welcomed by Brett Bivens. He is a writer. Um, well, we found him through his writing on Twitter, but uh, he also works at TechNexus, I believe. I'll kind of let you introduce yourself. Um, so what do you do for TechNexus and then what is TechNexus? Perfect, yeah. Um, thanks a lot for, for having me on. So really quick kind of background on uh, TechNexus. We are an early stage venture capital firm based in Chicago and our focus is really on the intersection of the early stage world and the corporate world. So we work very closely with a broad network of corporate partners who we build uh, vertical focused funds alongside and go invest alongside into uh, early stage companies that are really kind of reinventing and, and changing the industries that those large corporates operate in. And so um, that, you know, kind of gives us a really interesting perspective in terms of the emerging kind of new technologies, new companies that are being built up, as well as how large incumbent companies are reacting to those. And so my role with TechNexus is on the investment team. So I've been with TechNexus for about four years. Um, you know, in that time, we've, uh, we've done, you know, nearly 100 investments uh, across a number of different categories and different funds. We're extremely active in areas like audio and media, um, in industrial markets, uh, in public safety, in health and wellness. So we really touch, uh, you know, many things across the board. And um, personally, I mentioned we're based in Chicago. Uh, I'm personally based in Paris, where I also kind of head up a lot of our European investing and uh, European operations, as we do have kind of a global purview to the, the types of founders and the types of companies that we want to work with and back. So um, that's a bit about us. Prior to TechNexus, I uh, had a number of different roles in early stage companies. Um, in areas like business development and marketing, um, but also uh, on product as well. So kind of come to investing and come to the venture capital world uh, with a bit of an operator mindset. So um, that's, that's TechNexus. And uh, yeah, that's, that's a bit about me. Interesting. All right. Well, we have a few questions about uh, investing broadly, and then we'll dig into uh, audio specifically. So First one here, I, uh, I saw that you sort of talked about time arbitrage on Twitter. Do you want to kind of explain what that is and why it gives investors an advantage? You know, I think uh, I'm probably very similar to, to the two of you in that I'm always, uh, you know, studying other investors and, and trying to pick up, um, 
best practices and tips and, and, you know, different frameworks from, from people across the spectrum, across asset classes who uh, have interesting ideas. And, you know, time arbitrage is, is kind of a, a natural thing to think about and understand, but it's, uh, it's something that, that I've picked up along the way, just, just reading various people. And, you know, what it is, is it's, it's kind of just a way to think about different time preferences that competitors have in a market. Um, so, you know, differing time horizon uh, that's kind of, structurally dictated. So giving an investor or giving an operator of a business uh, a longer term orientation into the way that they're investing can be a really tremendous um, competitive advantage. And I guess to give you one example of sort of what time arbitrage looks like in practice from the world of, of venture capital, I guess, is, um, you know, the ongoing like fundraising cycle for a venture capital firm is typically every two or three years. So you go out, you raise a venture capital fund, um, you go invest most of that capital over the course of two or three years, and then you go back to the market to limited partners and say, hey, we'd, you know, we wanna raise another fund, maybe it's the same size, maybe it's bigger, but you know, each time you go out and raise a new fund, um, you are you know, going out there with the, uh, you know, the traction of your portfolio and kind of what your portfolio has done. And so you're, uh, you're trying to convey progress with a portfolio of early stage companies that may not actually have a ton of progress, the feedback loops in venture capital are very long. And so, you know, that can create a little bit of a, a weird incentive for, uh, for early stage investors who are, you know, maybe pushing money into companies that uh, are intended to, to grow super, super fast and get a ton of press and do a bunch of things that on the surface look really good, but don't actually uh, translate to long-term returns. And so, you know, a way that you might kind of think about time arbitrage in that sense is if most investors are playing that game and have uh, this incentive to, you know, fund these hot companies and fund the companies that are going to be in the press and raising big, big rounds and burning a ton of capital to grow, grow, grow. Uh, maybe your perspective is trying to partner earlier on with, uh, with capital providers for yourself that are going to commit upfront to two or three funds down the line. So you have a little bit more of a sustainable incentive to, to grow the business. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of a, maybe a long winded example of what time arbitrage looks like, but it really is kind of this mix of behavioral and structural advantage that you can kind of bake into the way that you operate that, uh, you know, in theory gives you a, an advantage over those that you're competing with. So I, um, I, I think Brett and myself are a little uninformed on the VC industry as a whole, uh, specifically sure. me. But uh, so when the LPs, you said they raise like a VC fund and you sign on LPs, do you usually have a specific time frame in which you're supposed to take an exit and return that capital to the LPs, or is it kind of vary? Yeah, so it's it's typically a you know, the, the life of a venture capital fund, um, broadly speaking, is it tends to be about 10 years. And the, the first two or three years of that is when you're sort of actively investing uh, most of the capital. And so the, you know, the, the first two or three years is when you're investing most of the capital uh, in the fund. And then, um, you know, you sort of manage that, those investments, those companies over the course of the next seven, eight, or even longer um, years as that fund kind of continues to go on. And then kind of, like I mentioned, you, you tend to go back out kind of two or three years, um, down the line to, to raise additional funds. Okay. Um, and you wrote a piece about benchmark capital and talked about their bottom up approach to investing. Um, so 
First off, can you tell us what the difference is between bottom-up and top-down investing? And then secondly, can you talk about how maybe the individual investor might be able to implement that sort of bottom-up style or throwing out the crystal ball? I, I know that was kind of a quote in your article was at Benchmark, they are trying to see the present clearly and it's not about predicting the future or predicting trends it's, or you just want to throw out that crystal ball. How can an individual investor do that? Cause I know most investors like myself, we sort of extrapolate out into the future and then we revert back to what companies are going to benefit from that type of future now. Um, and it sounds like that might not be the strategy to go with. So how can investors change that? Yeah. And I, I think it's a really, I mean, it's a really tough distinction to, to understand. Um, and it's a tough distinction to apply for, for anyone. Um, and, you know, I think the, the idea of sort of bottoms up and, and top down investing really has its roots in um, value investing. So going back to like Ben Graham and, um, you know, Buffett and Munger and um, all of these, all of these people who have, who have sort of talked about it. And I kind of came to it and started reading more about it and thinking more about it as I read uh, Margin of Safety from, from Seth Klarman. And what he talks about in there is that, you know, this, this idea of top-down investing, like you said, sort of looking out into the future, trying to be very, very smart about the trends that are occurring and not just being right about the trends that are going to occur, but also being able to, in practice, you know, find the right investment opportunities, um, size those investment opportunities, right. Do it faster or, um, better than, you know, the thousands of other people out there that are, you know, thinking they're just as smart. I mean, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a risky strategy. It's a, it's a strategy that's very difficult to pull off. Um, the sort of flip side to that bottoms up investing, I mean, is, is equally challenging to pull off. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy to say that uh, anything in investing is, is easy, right. But, um, the, the idea with that is, is just what you said. It's sort of throwing the, throwing the crystal ball out, coming to new investment opportunities with a very open mind, um, and really trying to stay close to sort of the, uh, the things that are occurring really on the ground, um, as, as things are, are going on. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of the, the high level distinction of it. Um, you know, I think, uh, a firm like Benchmark, uh, has the, has the advantage of uh, being early in venture capital, um, being around for a long time, having the brand recognition where they can sort of sit back at this point and say, okay, great. You know, we can, we can let all of the entrepreneurs sort of come to us and um, pick and choose from there. The, the challenge for, you know, maybe for venture investors is uh, most firms that come to market don't have those baked in benefits. So you do need to have some kind of, perspective on the market that you put out there as, you know, as marketing to cut through the noise, to get attention, et cetera. So um, it can be a bit challenging to, to apply this in practice. Um, and I think it's, you know, equally challenging for, uh, for an individual investor. Um, you know, I, I don't know if I have any, you know, specific tips for, for an individual investor to, uh, to apply it other than just to really say, you know, try, try not to <laughs> try not to think you're, you know, the, the smartest person in the world and that you have all the answers in terms of what the future is going to hold and have a very open mind in terms of uh, taking new information and processing new information and, um, you know, updating, updating your priors every time, you know, new things come in that either confirm what you thought before or contradict what you thought before. Interesting. So Bill Gurley at Benchmark, he talks about liquidity quality. Um, it's hard to say there, but uh, what mm -hmm. is that specifically? Because I've never heard of that term before. 
Yeah. And I think it's a term that, that he made up. Um, and it, it, it applies to this idea of, you know, top down investing versus, versus bottoms up investing. And the way that he sort of describes liquidity quality is, uh, you know, this, this sort of high engagement uh, among users, among customers, this deep passion, loyalty, love, uh, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Customers are, you know, paying for a product, coming back to use the product, telling their friends about the product. Um, even if it's in a very, very, very small cohort of users can actually be, you know, more important, more valuable and better data to go off of as an investor than if a company is, you know, trying to spread itself super wide and, um, you know, launch in new markets and, and do all these other things where they may not be getting as you know, sort of as deep of, of a customer relationship or, or customer love. And, you know, I think that's, that's sort of similar to this idea of uh, bottoms up investing, which is, you know, keep keeping your sort of nose to the ground and understand sort of the, the tactical on the ground things that are happening that are, uh, you know, building up to uh, to what these markets are going to look like and what these opportunities are going to look like long term, versus you know trying to go super wide and have this uh, again top down view of of what the world's going to look like. So he talks about it, you know, with marketplaces a lot. Um, so you know, trying to really really prove out engagement and retention and um, just this burning uh yeah burning engagement really for for a small cohort of users before trying to go wide and trying to boil the ocean are there any examples of companies that have done that before i know there are but just for the audience yeah i think the one you know the one that he uses is yelp and i think that's a good one where um you know when i think when benchmark led the led the round in in yelp um they you know they weren't, you know, super broad. They weren't, you know, national maybe at that point. They had a couple of cities. They were doing, you know, I think Paul Graham from Y Combinator always has, you know, famously said things that don't scale. So sort of these on the ground tactics to really um, make sure that, you know, customers in their core markets were happy and engaged and coming back and, you know, spending money and, and doing all these things. And, you know, that's, that's kind of exactly it. They were able to sort of say, okay, this is, this is working in one place. There's this, burning uh, passion from users and we can see how this is going to extrapolate out. Um, you know, another example that I think he's, he's talked about in the past is a company like Stitch Fix where uh, they, you know, they just saw incredible engagement, incredible word of mouth pickup from, from the product, even, even among a small cohort of initial customers. But that was enough to kind of give them, give them confidence that it could be scaled out uh, long-term. Right. Okay. And then one more question about uh, investing in VCs before we transition to audio and Spotify, which is what you tend to write about a lot, at least from the stuff we read on your newsletter. So what is the Facebook and Google tax and are there ways that companies can skip it? Yeah. Um, so I think the, there's a few, there's a few things or terms or sayings that have become common and I guess people might be familiar with. So you know, there's, there's the sort of notion that 40% of venture dollars get funneled straight back into Facebook and Google via ad spend. So companies needing to acquire customers and kind of grow, grow, grow very quickly. The fastest, most scalable way to grow is by paying those companies to advertise to customers. Um, that's a, you know, that's fraught uh, in many ways because of the fact that, you know, it really is Facebook and Google standing in the way of, of your customers. They're the ones that sort of own that relationship with, with so many people. That's a challenge. You know, you're always uh, subject to, 
you know, changes to the algorithm or uh, different, you know, different things that occur, you don't really own your own customer. And so that's kind of the tax that they, you know, that they, um, that they impose on, on the internet writ large. Um, it's, it's kind of this, you know, this, you may have heard the term like CAC is the new rent customer acquisition cost is the new rent. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, consumer internet companies for the most part, and, you know, there's more of a mix now than there was a few years ago, but, you know, they may not pay rent for a physical location, but they, you know, their, their rent is now um, acquiring customers via Facebook and Google. And so, um, you know, I think similar to, similar to uh, the, the notion of liquidity quality, um, companies that, uh, you know, maybe fall victim to this idea that they need to spend to grow, spend on advertisement to grow, sort of have this idea of, you know, going broad very early and uh, tend to lose sight in a lot of cases of real value to the customers and, and really generating the type of loyalty that's going to build the, you know, the word of mouth and the engagement and the, the retention that keeps people in your product and, and builds your own kind of, you know, network effect, um, whether probably a weaker form network effect than Facebook or one of those companies might have, but kind of builds your own, um, you know, you build your own ownership of, of those customers. And it's, it's hard to do. It's challenging. Not many companies have been able to do it. Um, but it's really about, you know, things like how do you, um, how do you build community with, uh, with your users? How do you make sure that, um, when behavior changes, like it, like it has recently with this whole pandemic that you're able to, you know, shift incentives and shift distribution models to make sure that you're able to serve your customers, uh, in the right way and deliver on your brand promises. So it's a, it's a big mix of things that kind of come together. And, um, it's a, it's a tightrope that companies have to walk because those, uh, those companies, Facebook and Google are, you know, monopolies and, and they are so, uh, so strong that if you, you know, if you don't do right by your customer and you don't build a product and build an entire experience that is, um, you know, passion inducing for them, then, then you're at risk of, of losing them and, and, uh, yeah. And, and losing out to that kind of competitive landscape that's there. Uh, that's a really, that's, that's a fascinating, fascinating idea that the best way to sort of expand and go broad is to focus on your existing customers first. Um, but before, or, but now let's transition to sort of audio based questions. Um, and so we, Brett and I are both shareholders of Spotify. Um, so I'd mm-hmm. love to get some of your takes on it. One question, and this is usually the first one because the gross margins are somewhat alarming to new investors because you look at it and it's like, well, that's not, you know, that's not great gross margins. It's, I think it's around 25% or something like that. Right. Um, it's definitely not tech, tech company. Yeah. Tech company right. margins. That's for sure. Um, and so I think a lot of that has to do with the unit economics of the music industry. What is so unfavorable about them for anyone that doesn't know? Yeah, I mean, I think the big thing is we talked about monopolies just before and, and the record labels and sort of the, the small group of record labels that, uh, that hold so much control and sway over uh, the rights to, to all of these music tracks and the output of many of these artists um, is, is monopoly-esque in itself. So uh, because, you know, three or four major labels hold the keys to um, accessing any music, you know, it's a broad set of music, um, companies like Spotify, despite the fact that they've sort of, you know, they, along with the rest of the streaming services, have um, reignited the, the music industry, they still have to pay a pretty hefty tax to uh, 
to companies like, uh, well, to, to those record labels to, to access that music. So that's, I mean, that's really the, the crux of it. Um, those labels have a significant amount of leverage because they own the content and, um, yeah, Spotify kind of to this point has had to play by their rules, which pushes their margins down, um, pretty significantly. For music specifically, can Spotify change that down the road? Let's say they got up to some like 500 million total uh, users or listeners. Would that sort of extensive reach give them more leverage in the negotiations with those labels or is it kind of stuck that way? No, I mean, I think there's definitely, there's definitely leverage that they can gain over time. And I think they've, they've gained leverage over time. Um, the, the tough thing for Spotify is like they've got this, they've got monopolies on both sides of them. So they're competing with, you know, monopolies that are the, or they're, well, yeah, their, their suppliers are these record labels that are monopolies. And then they're competing on the other side with these massive social media monopolies. So they're kind of stuck in the middle. Um, but yes, I mean, I think as they, as they continue to grow, if they're able to continue to carve out that path as the leader in uh, streaming music and audio content and develop additional lines of business that, um, that leave them sort of less dependent on the labels and give them a little bit more leverage and just kind of, yeah, incrementally take steps to build better relationships with the artists, build deeper relationships with the customers. Um, they, they will definitely, you know, gain leverage over time. Um, now I think that's, you know, a difficult path again, because of what I mentioned about the, the competitive landscape and them actually being able to, to get to that point. But yes, in theory, you know, there's, there's definitely paths for them to, to get that leverage and to, uh, you know, kind of shift those terms that they have with, with the record labels. Is there any way for, and I've heard, I think Daniel Eck talked about it on the invest, like the best podcast with Patrick O'Shaughnessy, where it's not favorable for the artists. If you try to do exclusive music or original music content with Spotify exclusively, what, why doesn't that work? Um, well, you know, I think that, uh, the way that, the way that, that artists kind of make money is by having their music listened to as broadly as possible. Um, okay. that's, that's sort of the way that they, uh, not only generate streaming revenue, but generate awareness for other ways that they make money, which is touring and, um, all of these other, uh, adjacent, um, kind of ways that they make money. I mean, most artists make most of their money from touring and from live shows today anyways. And so they want to have as broad of a reach as, as possible. Um, and so that, you know, by, by doing exclusive music, you know, there's, uh, there's elements of that that cut down on their ability to make money in the, the way that they make the most money. So yeah, exclusive music is, is pretty tough um, when it comes to, uh, when it comes to that. And uh, yeah, artists, like you said, are probably not in favor of, of taking that approach. I'm uh, sorry, I'm get, kind of getting off script here with, um, with these questions, but from the artist's perspective, how hard is it to sort of bypass the labels? Can you do well without signing to a label? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, this is, this is, probably getting a little bit beyond my own personal expertise. You know, I don't know uh, super deep uh, kind of knowledge of, of kind of how the, the labels work and, and all of that kind of stuff. But yeah, I mean, I, I think there's definitely been artists recently that have, um, you know, because of their own leverage, because of the fact that they can go direct to consumer um, with not only their music, but their sort of personalities in general, um, they, they can certainly bypass the labels to a degree. Um, right. And I think that, over time, you know, one of the things that um, going back to sort of can Spotify or these other platforms incrementally shift their leverage with the labels, um, 
there's, you know, there's a new feature on Spotify that's all about sort of direct payment to artists. And, you know, if, if more artists are, you know, less dependent on labels for uh, directly, you know, uh, monetizing and, and sending them revenue, then yes, I mean, I think there's long-term paths that more and more artists can kind of go independent and, and build their own paths for themselves. Interesting. Um, now, Spotify specifically has acquired a few companies recently, at, at Gimlet, The Ringer, Anchor, maybe I'm missing some, but those specifically are more on the podcasting side. How does that uh, alter the business model, if at all? Yeah. Um, so I think that, you know, podcasting uh, for Spotify as, at its core is, is sort of that that leverage play against um, against music streaming, against sort of the power that the record labels have. Um, so that's kind of the, I think maybe the first way to look at it is, you know, diversification of, of their business. Um, the, you know, the, there's, there's really big opportunities available to Spotify or to anyone else in podcasting. Um, you know, if you think about just the, the scope and the scale of the sort of, um, you know, terrestrial radio market and the way that people listen to, to that kind of content to, to be able to shift that online and bring, you know, internet level advertising to that at scale is, uh, is a huge opportunity because today, you know, podcasting uh, has remained kind of a niche business. It hasn't really had advertising um, at internet scale applied to it. So huge opportunities there. And, you know, similarly, uh, this is a, a type of content that Spotify can access in some cases can create exclusively, like you mentioned, some of the acquisitions they've had with uh, the ringer and Gimlet media where they have, you know, exclusive types of content um, that they can monetize. And, you know, at some point don't have to pay a, a full cut to the labels. I mean, right now, all of the money that kind of flows to their platform uh, from subscriptions and things like that does flow through to the labels still. But, um, but again, over time, maybe that changes and maybe their uh, margins kind of go up along with that. I'm curious what you like better in terms of when they, when they diversify into that podcasting space, do you prefer those content acquisitions like Gimlet and the ringer or sort of owning the production side? Like, like we use anchor to produce our mm -hmm. shows. So I'm curious, what do you think will be more beneficial for them down the road? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. Um, you know, I don't know if I can sit here and say which one will be more beneficial for them long-term, but I do believe that both will be necessary and both will be beneficial. So, I mean, I think even beyond podcasting, I think as they, as they build deeper relationships with the artists directly, again, as they're able to shift the leverage with the labels to the extent they're able to, um, you know, you could certainly see them moving back into more creation tools for, uh, for other types of audio artists as well for music artists. And so I think that both, both pieces will be uh, pretty critical to, how they sort of try to develop platform power over time and really make sure that both consumers and uh, creators are, are dependent on, um, on them and on their platform. I, I do think though that the, the content side and the content acquisitions that they've made are pretty critical and, and pretty important. Um, mm -hmm. You know, Spotify seems to be the type of company that's stays very close to their users, really um, understands culture, cares a lot about culture and, you know, content creation is, is all about that. And so, you know, to the extent that they can keep um, bringing in uh, content houses, content creators that 
understand various pieces pieces of culture that are that are uh, interesting and relevant to the Spotify user base. I think that's going to be you know continue to be important for them and continue to help them evolve as a as an audio first platform. Right, and transitioning from Spotify specifically, uh, you write about ambient media, which I think is a new topic. Um, well, maybe you coined it. I don't know if you did, but what is ambient media and why do you think it is important? Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if I coined it. Maybe uh, that'd, <laughs> that'd be cool if I did. But I mean, definitely ambient computing is, is, is this notion that's that's been out there for a while and companies like Google uh, care a lot about it, which is really this idea that, you know, as you go through your day, um, the the content that you're consuming, the communication that you're having flows seamlessly across devices, whether it's, you know, over time, uh, your phone to your smart speaker to eventually, um, you know, AirPods and headphones that have some degree of, of intelligence and compute to them uh, to to a computer. So whatever, you know, whatever device you're on, being able to kind of uh, integrate seamlessly, work seamlessly together. Um, and this idea of, of ambient media is interesting because a lot of the ways that, you know, that new computing paradigm comes to life is in a sort of heads up fashion. So, if we're talking about you know using a smart speaker, or we're talking about uh, using AirPods and communicating uh, you know via voice with with AirPods, that's you know eyes up content. That's content that's occurring while we're sort of moving around a city or moving around our house. Uh, we're not staring at a screen, and so there's lots of opportunities for audio to kind of fit in there in interesting ways. And you know the obvious way is with you know, just pure consumption. So owning a share of, you know, what, what people call the audio day, you know, and that's when you're commuting or at the gym or uh, doing dishes, all these different, all these different times when, you know, you're sort of occupied in one way or another, but audio can, can fit into that. Um, and that's, you know, that's one piece of ambient media. So being able to, uh, you know, surface contextually relevant content and help you find the right content for the right moment. Um, so that's, that's certainly one piece of it. And, and then the other piece is, um, you know, going beyond just maybe music and spoken word content to the way that, um, you know, social media evolves in a world where we're, uh, you know, less on a screen and more using voice or using smart speakers or uh, communicating, um, you know, without, without video or whatever it may be. So I think that there's just a lot of different ways where audio fits in there beyond just content consumption that could be paths for, you know, for Spotify or for other companies in this space to, to make moves and kind of take, uh, the share of the, you know, the consumer's audio day. So within that, why are AirPods so important? Yeah. I, I mean, I think that uh, they're, they're important because they've, I mean, they've already proven that they've delivered a superior, I guess, customer experience and user experience to, um, to users out there. And so just the fact that they've grown as fast as they have, and that whether or not it becomes a, you know, a new platform or a new way that, you know, developers build new experiences and solutions, it's at least a new peripheral to the way that we think about sort of our mobile computing uh, world. And so it's, it's relevant from that perspective because it does change sort of the, um, you know, as, as voice assistants get smarter, as you know, Siri, et cetera. Um, get smarter over time. It does change the the way that we interact with with our devices and the way that we think about um, you know consuming content and even creating content and communicating with one another. So I think that you know all of those things. Again, I um, can't sit here and say this is exactly what's going to happen with these. You know, is it going to be a platform? Is it not? I, I don't know. But 
just the fact that the adoption that they've seen and the depth of engagement that they've seen is so high. Um, there's, there's obviously something to it. And I think that uh, they play a, a critical role in, in the future of that ambient media world. Okay. And one last question from me on audio. What avenues yeah. for growth are there outside? Well, I guess you can include maybe podcasting and music, but what avenues for growth are there maybe over the next decade for the audio industry? So I think, you know, within podcasting, and just to touch on that really quickly, we, we talked about that a little bit where podcasting and spoken word audio really hasn't seen sort of internet scale advertising, uh, targeted advertising applied to it. So, I mean, I think that's, that's certainly one path uh, for growth there. I think that there are, um, you know, as we're kind of seeing right now with, you know, everybody stuck at home and, and uh, communicating in different ways. Uh, right now it's a lot of video streaming and video communication, but there's a, there's a world where, you know, audio live streaming, um, is, is large and grows as well. I think in, you know, in China, for example, there's, um, there's been a proliferation of audio live streaming, uh, via, via different applications that we don't necessarily have, um, here. And so, you know, that's, that's one path as well. And then, you know, I think, uh, audio, I mean, the really interesting thing about audio is like, we sort of think about it today as like, this is a podcast and this is an audio book and this is a audio based workout that I'm doing, uh, or this is in a, you know, a class that I'm taking in school that I'm kind of listening to via audio. And I think that over time, we're going to see some really interesting new content formats emerge that aren't an audio book and aren't a podcast, but are a mix of the two or, uh, you know, aren't a, uh, aren't an educational class and aren't a, you know, uh, entertaining host giving us a podcast, but are a mix of the two. And so um, I think that there's just a lot of opportunities for uh, sort of format innovation around, around audio related content that's going to start to integrate into, you know, different parts of our life. So I think those are a few of the, a few of the areas there that, that I'm most excited about and interested in. For Spotify specifically, do you think it's, helpful that they are sort of the pure play in the industry and by pure play i mean they are that their sole focus is audio versus apple who podcast mm -hmm. and music probably make up very little of their top line so do you think that's beneficial for them because i've heard some people kind of have the take where these big tech companies that are moving into the space have so much capital to throw at it that they are going to be able to win um do, do you think it's better that spotify is a pure play I do. I, you know, I think one of the things that you know, one way to think about sort of the, uh, the approach that those big platforms are taking to the music streaming space and even to, to podcasting and spoken word audio is that they're really looking to commoditize that part of the market. So they've got these core, core businesses, whether it's AirPods, whether it's Alexa, whether it's, you know, Google search, whether it's, uh, you know, ByteDance is a massive player here as well with, with TikTok, and, and they've had just a, a tremendous, um, impact on the on the music industry over the last couple of years and so all of those core platforms and core core businesses of those companies are um are the focus for those for those you know large uh monopoly players basically and so they're looking to again commoditize the the music streaming business and uh you know maybe take costs down or, or do whatever they need to do there and yeah i think the only way for spotify to really fight back against that is to have a pure focus on delivering the best experience, um, you know, and that's, that cuts all the way through from uh, the way that it's presented in the product itself and, and sort of the additional features that come in the app. But 
um, you know, things like discoverability, which is really where they've uh, made their reputation and still seem to stand out amongst all of those competitors. So yeah, really, really, you know, committing fully and having this sort of existential threat looming that, Hey, if, if we don't get audio, right, we don't have a company uh, versus right. some of these others who, you know, may not uh, have the same degree of focus on nailing that audio experience because it's really just in service of more lucrative businesses. So yeah, I think to your question, um, it's, it's probably necessary that they really focus on that and stay, stay true to that, um, that part of the business. Okay. Now let's get to the two wrap up questions we ask on every interview. Uh, first one, what is one financial saying that you disagree with? So, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's necessarily a saying, but I think it is going back to some of the stuff that we were talking about earlier. Um, you know, I think that in the venture capital space specifically, um, because of, you know, all of the noise that's out there, all of the challenges with really cutting through uh, the, the attention and, and getting yourself known, getting your firm known uh, to entrepreneurs, to other investors, et cetera. Uh, there is a tendency to be sort of very top down and, and try to be the smartest person in the room. And I think that that kind of gets in the way of, uh, of what we talked about, which is kind of this bottoms up approach to investing that um, that is more sustainable over time. And so I think it's, it's less, of, less of a saying and more of an approach where uh, because of some of the incentives that are baked into the venture capital market for investors, uh, they tend to, you know, chase, uh, chase hot deals and chase, you know, high growth at the expense of more sustainable um, operations. So, yeah, so I guess that'd be, that'd be my answer. Not a, not a quick fire, I apologize, but uh, that'd be my first answer there. Okay. Last question then. What is one piece of advice you have for any novice investors? Yeah. So there's a, a really good essay that I actually reread um, yesterday called The Playing Field from, from someone named Graham Duncan, who runs a, I think it's a multifamily office uh, in, in New York. And it's really all about understanding the game that you're playing um, at different stages of, of your career and, and not trying to get too far ahead of yourself uh, and making sure that you're, you know, learning uh, at the right pace and, uh, and, and kind of, you know, progressing in the right fashion. And he kind of goes into these five different steps that somebody takes in their career from it's apprentice to expert to professional to master to steward eventually. And uh, it's really all about being um, kind of self critical and self-aware enough to know what you don't know and, um, and try to, yeah, try to use that to make sure that you're playing the right game at every point in your career. So that'd be, I guess my, I don't know, not really in a position to give advice, I guess, but that'd be the thing that I try to keep in mind all the time is, you know, am I, um, am I, you know, playing a game that fits my strengths and my weaknesses and do I understand what those strengths and weaknesses are? Yeah, no, I like that one. Um, all right. Well, that's going to do it for us. Thank you for joining us, Brett. Thanks, guys. I appreciate you having me on. And oh, before you go, where can people find you? Yeah. So uh, I spend a lot of time on Twitter at Brett Bivens. Uh, I write a lot at VentureDesktop.com. And then if anyone's interested in learning more about TechNexus, it's just TechNexus.com. All right. Perfect. Well, thanks again for having or for coming on. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Okay, welcome back. Thanks again to Brett Bivens uh, for joining us. Had a lot of fun, but next up we have our hot water. I have like five, I think. So Wow. You're going for one of our last shows temporarily, as we said. Uh, the, you're going with one of your records here, huh? You're finally catching on. 
Yeah, yeah. No, I've got some good ones. Uh, I've got some real ones and some stupid ones. So let, yeah, yeah, go ahead. You start off. You start off. Okay, so being humble is in hot water this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, Papa John was on TikTok literally <laughs> just bragging about how rich he was. First was a video touring his mansion, and on one post it said, did you know I have my own helicopter? And mm. that was like just his helicopter in his yard, and every single post was hashtagged with money. Yeah, once you realize – like Papa John's insane. He's 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 also the same guy that said he eats forty pizzas in thirty days. Yeah, and that the day of reckoning is coming. Uh, but which he was right, I guess. The day of reckoning, he was the prophet. Like in November, he said the day of reckoning was coming, and then the coronavirus hit. So you know, who knows? He could be a prophet. But this kind of once you realize that about 70% of the people that are on TV that aren't like media or whatever reporters and things like that are insane that are just famous for being famous to stuff like that is kind of when you realize, Oh yeah, you know, Papa John doing all this stuff that, that makes sense. You know, I could see it. Yeah. Um, men are also in hot water this week. According to an article from the New York post, which uh, had I, this one, I know New York post, whatever. Uh, a study no, no, no. I have this one too. Oh, yeah, and I, I, I guess New York Post is usually bullshit headlines, but whatever. Um, a study was conducted by researchers from Middlesex University, London, that men are less likely to wear a mask because they are not cool and a sign of weakness. I, I feel like it's kind of true. I, I feel like, guys, I, I could see that being true. Oh, yeah, you could have predicted this in February. If it's save your life or look dumb uh, or, sorry, look cool, guys are choosing look cool every time why do you think they all smoke cigarettes don't get me wrong i've had i've, I've been wearing a few masks that sucked um in the uh throughout grocery stores and whatnot and i i feel like taking them off too but it's because of like airflow and uh, not, not because i look stupid yeah just get those cloth ones you know the yeah, i got a one time i got a nice mask guy like a like some guy joe biden said nice mask i was like what dude Buzz off, buddy. Yeah, it's probably the same guy not wearing it. Yeah, he wasn't wearing a mask. Uh, so I just kind of was, well, he couldn't tell, but my face was not too he's happy with a, him. He's going to have a lot of people to uh, tell that to if that's, if that's his thing now. Um, okay, right. my third one is Uber. This one's real. They are cutting 3,000 additional jobs on top of their already existing cuts that we discussed last week. That's more than 25% of their workforce gone in less than a quarter. So here's what I'm inferring. A, a I was right. Um, oh, humble Greg. You There's literally no cost cutting that uh, a, like a platform that's not responsible for anything can do other than fire people. So right. once again, I was right. And when they say, don't worry, we have liquidity and you think it doesn't, and you're burning two and a half, three billion a quarter. It's not because they have liquidity with their current operations. It's because they're going to fire half their workforce. Yeah. I mean, they had like $10 billion after the IPO, but if they're burning that much money, uh, it'll go fast. Yeah. Um, Okay. My fourth one, Jesus is in hot water because today as analysts pressed Masayoshi's son about his $13 billion annual loss, he compared himself to Jesus Christ. He said his investment strategy was misunderstood much how Jesus was misunderstood. Right. That, uh, yeah. I wonder how that'll go well with the uh, Saudi investment fund. 
who has forty yeah. billion dollars in there. I think they're uh, they're Christians, right? I have no idea. But no, uh, they're they're, it, they're not. They're Muslim. But yeah, right. Sorry. Uh, f- uh, fifth one. I'm sorry. I'm laughing at this already. Uh, crowdsourcing is in hot water, and I know m- most people probably aren't here to listen about for sports, but the organization attempting to build an MLS team in San Diego, there's like a group that's, I don't know if they've gotten certification to build one or whatever, but they're trying to build uh, an MLS team in San Diego. And they put out a poll asking fans what they wanted the name to be. And the most voted on name was the San Diego footy McFoot face. Uh, (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Should have known crowdsourcing would be a bad idea. Here. Did you see that uh, the Nets player, Spencer Dinwiddie, is crowdsourcing his next contract through Bitcoin futures and deciding where he should go for his next team? I did not, no. Yeah, oh. so. Damn. Um, okay, that, those were my five. What do you have? All right, first up, VCs are in hot water because the chain smokers are starting a $50 million investment fund Definitely not the type of things you see in a market that I like don't know. Like a band or like a group? Y- yeah, whatever that, the, the, you know, the group, the, the big musical group. Oh, yeah. No, I love them. Yeah, you big Chainsmoker guy. Pretty, oh, unique, yeah, uh, pretty unique band. They got some unique noise. Uh, they, they're starting a $50 million fund, though. This is like when an athlete does something. When you see them investing in something, you almost always have to say, ah, no, no, no. I'm not going to invest in that because... Look, you can't just turn into Peter Thiel overnight. Wait, I thought you meant they are looking to raise money. They are starting a fund. A fund, yeah. They have, well, I don't know if they uh, are starting with all their own money, but it is a $50 million investor fund, assuming they're pretty rich, so it could be all their own money. I hope it's not LPs, so. All right, other other ones. Uh, GIFs and Twitter, because Facebook is buying Giphy for $400 million dollars Weird acquisition, uh, but it's kind of just a fuck you one because Facebook can do that really overnight. Uh, and Twitter, hopefully they keep the Giphy on there because it's, it's the plugin's nice. Uh, oh, yeah. But I don't know. Uh, it's going to be really frustrating if my GIF game goes. Ash- I mean, you can download them to like your photos or whatever and then do it, but it's just a whole other process. Yeah. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? Maybe they'll start having to license it. All right. uh, Us young workers, though, this is my last one. So young workers are in hot water because the average working hours it takes to buy the S&P 500. So saying like you have to work this many hours on the average salary to buy whatever the $3,000 it is of the S&P 500 is at all time highs now. So it's over 115 working hours to buy one share of the S&P 500. The average since 1860 it's a long time frame here, and I know, whatever, the markets weren't the same back then, but the average since 1860 has been about 31. So not great. I think I saw this chart, and it's kind of an interesting concept because it, it kind of relates to, like, wealth disparity. Definitely, definitely. Like, it's kind of a good indicator. I mean, maybe there's flaws in it, but it feels like a good indicator in terms of, like, that disparity between the uh, the 1% or the rich, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Any others? That's it. That's okay. it. 
my my fuck Mary kill this week the theme is the three stocks that you want to own for the next three years so you have to fuck Mary kill square spotify or match group wow making it tough making it tough i'll marry so you're basically gonna make me rank these huh i'll yeah. marry spot although before the coronavirus it would have been square just the risk I'll kill Square just because, you know, the facts have changed. It's going lower in my portfolio, although, you know, as conviction, but Cash App is still very strong, and I think that's going to help them a ton and be the biggest part of the company in, like, five years. The biggest part will be Cash App, but and I'll, I'll fuck Match Group just because nah, they're probably second. They were up, like, 7% today, so. Nah, whatever. I don't know. Um, Who cares? Yeah, I might be marrying Match Group. Um, and then Spotify just seems sort of like it's going to take longer to see the material impact of some of the stuff that they're doing in terms of like podcasting and other forms of audio content. So uh, it might take a while for us to see that. So maybe I'll bang Square, kill Spotify. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Square's got a higher valuation, though, now that, now that the price has recovered so much. It's true. Um, okay, anecdotal evidence. I have two. Um, they're both kind of crappy, but whatever. You want me to go first? Go ahead. Okay, I'm going on a cross-country trip for this job that we discussed. Um, and I'm staying in a few places. While I'm there, I'm staying in an Airbnb, but... While I'm going, I'm like driving, so I'm going to stay in hotels. And I thought about it. One night stays and two night stays. I'm going to take a hotel over an Airbnb every time. Mm, You sure, though? Are you talking cleanliness or just in general? If you're doing a one night thing, most Airbnbs with the cleaning fee and all that, you're going to hit around 100 bucks anyways. Right, right, because of the, okay, so week-long Airbnb just because you incur that cleaning stuff and that's and not, then, yeah, group, okay. And then secondly, there's the risk that you don't know who you're staying with, you know, all that stuff. Like, if you pick the wrong Airbnb, there's just... Dude, you're like... Okay. No, there's less risk factor staying at a Marriott. You know what you're getting. I know, I know, but... Especially if you're only doing it for one night. Dude, you just get the good ratings on Airbnb. I don't know, but... And there's like a... Point zero 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 one percent chance that anything happens to you. No, I don't. It's the mean same that. as a hotel. Like, in terms of like room accommodations and what all's there. Mm, I don't know. I've stayed in some bad hotels. But you know what you're getting if it's like name brand uh, hotel, like chain, like Marriott. I guess, but then it's going to be more than a hundred bucks a night. No, I found every every hotel I'm staying at's a Marriott, and they're all like a hundred bucks a night. Okay, then it's the same. Yeah, and if it's the same, I would probably rather stay in a hotel, you know? Eh, I don't know. I don't know. And then, I guess, obviously, if you're staying somewhere long-term, then Airbnb is probably the way to go. Um, All right, and then my second one here is I am starting to see sort of this, and it's probably been going on for a while. It's the, yeah, I know it's out there, but I don't care anymore attitude with coronavirus. I'm starting to see that everywhere. Mm Mm-hmm. I like, mean, I'm already feeling it a little bit. I'm trying to resist, but I'm. Is there going to come a point where where America or have we reached this point where people just say screw it, 
let the consequences fall how they may, we're, we're restarting. The momentum's building to that, but I would say I have no idea. Okay. All right. It's a very what difficult situation. Uh, mine, so, hmm, what should I do first here? Did you see that shopping cart post that went viral? No. Hmm. All right. Okay. So basically the theory is if you see someone or you're with someone and they don't return the shopping cart at the grocery store, it's an easy sign that you should never do, you shouldn't be friends with them and you shouldn't do, have a relationship with them or you shouldn't go into business with them. Because if you don't return the shopping cart, you're not meant to live in society because there's basically no, it's so easy and you're not like, you don't have to return the cart but a good person will return the cart. And my question for you would be, what other things can people do where you go, okay, I, I'm never going into business with you or I probably am not going to you know, call you back or something like that? I mean, right now, probably wear a mask. Mm, the mask is, or I mean, if they forget a mask, whatever. But I mean, maybe- if, they, if they don't want to wear a mask on purpose. Yeah, because there are, I mean, there are definitely, or people that are like, you know, nice mask, like you had, because um, there's definitely people that are doing it just simply out of like refusal to accept it. But like, listen, like regardless of political ideology, there are some people that are at higher risk and wearing the mm-hmm. mask would help. It's, it's like a F you to them. It's like smoking cigarettes three feet away from a grocery store door. Yeah. All right, I got another one for you. It is if you, okay, this is more investing related, but say someone, some person has, and they're not even into investing, they have a super hot take about a stock that I know for a fact, like they're getting all the facts wrong or something like that. Or they're talking about, you know, you know what I mean? You probably had that before. Yeah, a million times. Yeah. That is a big red flag that I would never want to do anything investment related with them. And then two, if someone is lying about something and you know they're lying and you say something like, are you sure? Or are you sure that's true? Or, you know, something like that. And they never even like say, no, maybe it's not true or something like that. But if they're so hard headed on something like that and they have total confidence in a lie or maybe they don't know they're lying, maybe they think something, but it's not actually true. That's a big red flag for me too. Yeah, I feel like you've been just like, Livid with some people this week or some someone didn't return someone didn't return a cart and someone no I just uh, no 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 the the cart thing was there was like two hundred thousand retweets on this I'm surprised you didn't see it but the I don't know the theory is there and I guess hmm, maybe holding a door open for someone but that's a little less sometimes whatever that's you can't um, just base a whole relationship off that yeah. It is tough. Like, I feel like every person in finance has encountered that at some point, like someone just outright, like some take, they don't really know what they're talking about. Um, I've had it with some of my professors, not going to lie. That's why they're professors, not investors. Yeah. It's a little, it's frustrating, but like, I don't know. All you can really do is because maybe that's like me to someone else. Like mm-hmm. maybe they, maybe they hear my takes my takes and think the same thing. So I don't know. Like it's easier said than done, but just try to like not be that guy. Yeah, but yeah, I don't know. Is there any other in life things 
where hmm, like the shopping cart, like something in public. Ooh, like parking. I think an easy one is if you are with someone and they don't park within the lines or if they make a mistake and they don't go out and fix it. Huge red flag for me. These, uh, these just sound like your biggest pet peeves. No, no, no. It's not about the pet peeve because it doesn't affect me and it's not really a pet peeve, but it just shows that I wouldn't want to go into business with this person because they don't put others before them. You know what I mean? Yeah. And also who, who like doesn't, who doesn't return a cart? Like, what are you going to do? Leave it people, people don't, you, you've probably, people don't, you know, they just leave them. Right. I mean, I usually like return it on my way out. Like I just carry the bags to the car. Right. I don't know. All right. Well, that's going to do it then. No, I got another one. Oh, you got another one. All right. So there was this, uh, I guess it's older, but Patrick O'Shaughnessy posted it. Did you end up reading this blog post called The Playing Field? Yeah, that's the one with the like five tiers, right? And you're like, Mm -hmm. yeah. Huge recommendation uh, for anyone investing or that's trying to get better at any field. Uh, But he classifies it. So it's this guy... And his name's Graham Duncan. And he says he's interviewed over 5,000 investment managers over his years. So he's kind of an expert in that field. Uh, Whatever, I don't know, he runs some sort of capital management, but I'm not sure why he's interviewing so many of these people. But he basically talks about how they're in the investment game. There's basically five levels. One is apprentice, learning the game. Two is expert, mastering the game you were taught. Three is professional, making the game you were taught fit your own strengths and weaknesses. Four master which is changing the game you play as a part of your own self-expression and operating at scale and five which is steward becoming part of the playing field itself and mentoring the next generation who are obviously we're like apprentice right but who do you think might be are some of the professionals masters and stewards out there um yeah so i, w- I don't even know for apprentice yet honestly um no apprentice is like learning the game so anyone that's learning is apprentice yeah but you're like looking for like a role model above you right that was the first one no no anyone can do apprentice oh well yeah that's basically us on twitter so uh and uh, i mean yeah we are apprentices um man the best the the stewards buffett dalio graham dalio i am tempted to say no because well no no no. he's the guy that he's the guy that controls the markets um, by, yeah. you know, if he says something, uh, the markets will move and he is the one that people look up to. There's a lot of people, you know, the last three years or whatever, the last even year, he's kind of gone off the rails, but yeah. before that he's been really renowned. Yeah, I guess that's true. Um, Buffett's a for sure. Uh, I don't know. There's like smaller people probably on Twitter that I like that you kind of just sort of have to respect. I mean, Patrick O'Shaughnessy. No, 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 no. They're not. Look, no, no. Stewards, there's like three of them total. I, I thought stewards were like those giving back to the community of what they've learned. No, no, no. Matt, stewards is, look, like basically they make a comment and they're, they're a part of investing themselves. They're taught like they're going to be remembered for hundreds of years because of what they've given back to the investment world. And plus you have to become a master first, which is like David Tepper, Drunken Miller, Maybe Jim O'Shaughnessy, but maybe I just thinking about them because he's on Twitter. Michael Barry is probably a master. Um, I'm missing quite a few others, but stewards, there's like 
three or four, maybe five total. Okay, then yeah, Buffett, Dalio, Icon, Icon, yeah, Icon, Graham, Munger, yeah. uh, maybe Peter Lynch. I don't know. Is he Peter, Peter Lynch? Yeah, he he's a steward. Charles yeah. Schwab, maybe a little different. Jack Bogle. Uh, Vanguard. What's his name? Vanguard. Bogle. Bogle. Yeah. That there. There's my stewards right there. Yeah. All right. Is that it? Yeah, I just I would recommend reading it if you're into you're listening to this. You're probably into investing. Um, it's like a ten minute read, and it's probably the best investing post I've ever read. So definitely take a take a look at it. All right. Well, that is going to do it. Thank you all for listening. Um, follow us wherever you're listening. Like and review. The reviews actually help. So if you're on Apple Podcasts and you actually do like us, please leave a review. Even some constructive feedback would be helpful. Um, and then follow us on Twitter as well at Chit Chat Money. If you have any show recommendations um, or you just want to say what's up or you want us to try to interview someone, give us an email, uh, chitchatmoneypodcast at gmail.com. We are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next week.